I'm Stuart Preston, and this is the Consciousness Podcast, where each week I have a conversation with an expert in human consciousness. This week, I had the pleasure of speaking with Jonathan Simon, who is a postdoctoral associate in the NYU Department of Philosophy and a research fellow of the NYU Center for Mind, Brain, and Consciousness and the Global Institute for Advanced Study Project on Space, Time, and Consciousness. His primary research is in the metaphysics of mind. He also has research interests in perception, the metaphysics of science, moral psychology, value theory, and legal and political philosophy. We had a great discussion on property dualism, the immortality of the soul, and much more. So please enjoy this edition of the Consciousness Podcast with Jonathan Simon. Appreciate you joining today. So um, I'll just start with a typical question so we have a, a baseline to, to work from. Um, how, how do you define consciousness? Great question. I mean, I think, actually, I'm not going to answer that question directly because I would actually say uh, uh, you can't define consciousness. Consciousness is a primitive. But what I would really say is I think of consciousness as um, the state of, you know, the light being on, the state of there being something it's like to be you. Um, but right. again, I would stress that really uh, any any attempt to define consciousness is going to end up going in circles. And Really, the project here is to kind of, you know, point to it, indicate it in the right sort of way, direct attention properly. Um, right. And so, you know, you can talk about the, the feel of a, of a headache or the experience of something that's shining brilliant red. Uh, but, but, you know, each of those terms, feel and experience, they can each be questioned. So I think the point is, uh, as uh, uh, one of my professors, Ned Block, likes to say, uh, it's like what Louis Armstrong said about jazz. If you have to ask, you ain't never going to get to know. And uh, oh. you know, that's not quite right because people can ask what jazz is. Um, the point is, if you, the only kind of answer you can really give is, hey, it's that. It's music like this. So, yeah, I, yeah. Think, I think consciousness is the state of the light being on. Okay. It is that, that feeling, that sensation of knowing that the light is on. I wouldn't say knowing. I think the light can be on even if you don't know it's on. I think to know yeah, about know consciousness is, is knowing that the light is on. But in principle, it's just, you know, there's, there's either something it's like to be you or there isn't. And you might think there's nothing it's like. You might not know that there's something it's like. But as long as there's something it's like, then you're conscious. Right. Then you're conscious, yeah. Then you're conscious. Although it's tricky okay. too, you know, Daniel Soldar, who's an important philosopher at uh, the Australian National University, has a whole bit about how the phrase something it's like is problematic itself. And if you try to analyze that one way, it, it falls apart. And if you try and analyze it another way, it also falls apart. Um, so again, even, even the phrase something it's like, you can't lean too much on, you know, it's all about just sort of gesturing the right direction. And basically I think yeah. when we talk about consciousness, we're talking about a conceptual primitive. You know, if, if I asked you to define um, uh, adding in terms of other operations, you could maybe reduce talk of adding to talk about a successor function or something like that. But ultimately you've got to start somewhere. And I think the consciousness is really one of those primitives. The primitive means it's, it's the essential elements. Like the, the like a basic, elements. it's a building block concept. It's one of the concepts that um, you, you have, maybe you have to work at it. You have to kind of polish it off, but you've got to be, you've got to already be equipped with uh, something, some grasp of something in the vicinity in order to yeah. learn about it. Okay. Well, I don't know if that makes, gives me much hope since I never really did understand jazz. <laughs> yeah, me neither. Yeah. But, <laughs> um, um, so I guess, I guess we could build on that, that on a, the concept then. And I saw in, in some of your writings that you describe yourself as a quote property dualist. And, you know, you can't look at um, consciousness without, looking at dualism or physicalism and, but I, I never came across uh, property dualism or property dualists. So what, what does that mean? So the basic distinction here is between property dualism and substance dualism. And so this is a basic metaphysical distinction mm -hmm. where a substance is a, is a thing, you know, something that's concrete, an object that persists through time and has properties. And then properties are the things that, you know, the ways that things are. So, you know, if, if the baseball is a substance, the whiteness of the baseball, baseball is one of its properties, and the roundness of right. the baseball is another one of its properties. So, mm -hmm. when we talk about substance versus property dualism here, 
The question is whether there's this one thing, my body, and then another thing, my mind or my soul, and, and the two things kind of lead their separate but parallel lives. That's what substance dualists say. And then property dualists say that, the, you know, there's this thing, me, and that thing is different ways. You know, just as the baseball is both round and white, I mm -hmm. am both um, conscious and also have neurons doing such and so. You know, so I have these, these physical properties and also mental or phenomenal consciousness properties. And the, right. the property dualist just says, hey, the, the properties that, that go into being conscious are different from the properties that go into any kind of physical arrangement. Um, and this, I think of it, it's, it's a matter of logical entailment. So if you're a substance dualist, you're probably going to, you have to be a property dualist. Um, but uh, if you're a property dualist, you don't have to be a substance dualist. So when I say I have some arguments that defend property dualism, but I think of those as neutral about substance dualism. So I think substance dualism might be true or it might be false, but I think I have some arguments that establish property dualism. Right. But, it, but uh, property dualists, when arguing, I mean, uh, substance dualists, when they argue substance, it uh, almost excludes property dualism? No, no, no. I think, I think substance dualism in, entails property dualism. So if you're a substance dualist, you've got to also be a property dualist. Because if you're a substance dualist, okay. you think there's these two kinds of things. And, there, and those right. two things, you know, there's the physical things and the mental things. And physical things have physical properties. And then presumably mental things don't have physical properties. Um, but they have these other kinds of properties that, that you know, make them conscious. So, so then you've you're, you're got to be a property dualist because you think there are physical properties and there are mental properties and, and not, never the twain shall meet. Um, but the pro there's also a way of being a property. You can be a property dualist without being a substance dualist. You could think there's just one thing. And it's both physical and mental. Uh, you just think that it's, it's physicality and it's mentality are distinct, just as the baseball's whiteness and sphericality are distinct. And then, yeah. and then reductivists, people who are monists about people, like people who are property uh, monists, you don't say that. You say people who are identity theorists or, or um, type identity theorists or reductionists or something like that. Uh, everyone uses their own terminology. It makes it all really confusing because no two philosophers talk in quite the same way. Right. But, uh, you know, the, the, the salient question is whether being conscious just is, uh, you know, being so-and-so neuronally structured or having such-and-such such a function or having such-and-such such a behavior or having such-and-such such an informational integration value. Um, and the, uh, the identity theorists and the reductionists say yes. It, so to be a reductionist in, in about baseball would be to say, oh, well, the white, for a baseball to be white just is for it to be spherical. Um, and obviously that's wrong there. We know it's wrong there because we know that some baseballs can be spherical but not white. And some baseballs mm -hmm. can be white but not spherical. So we know those two properties can't go together. With consciousness, it's harder because there's a range of physical properties that in all the cases we've checked go along with consciousness. So the question is just whether that's kind of an accident or maybe a law of nature linking two distinct things, or in fact, whether it's sort of evidence that they're the same thing looked at from a different angle. Right. Okay. Um, so, in, you know, in, in your view of, of dualism, in the property dualism, mind, body, you know, what, is there a point at which they are tied together? You know, what are your views of, of how the two are, are joined together or are they not joined? I know we're going to talk more about consciousness, you know, the immortality of it and the survival of it and maybe even the moment that it crosses over from existing to not existing. But, you know, in your view of the, the dualism, what, what binding is there between consciousness and in body? Well, you know, I don't have a very, I don't have a worked out view on that. I haven't published explicitly on that topic. Um, mm -hmm. I tend to suspect that it seems to me that the most conservative thing to say, sort of theoretically conservative is to say, well, so I think I'm a property dualist. I think that consciousness properties, phenomenal properties, as they're sometimes called, I think they're distinct from, uh, neuronal functional properties and so on. But I, I certainly think the, the conservative thing to say is that there's some kind of laws linking the two. I think there's some kind of psychophysical laws 
I think they probably they should probably be thought of along the lines of uh, other laws of physics, you know, laws that explain how the fundamental forces bind different kinds of things together. You know, here's how, yeah. uh, you know, uh, uh, different kinds Strong of particles interact. Like yeah, exactly. Um, you know, here's how, uh, here's how quarks and leptons get together. Uh, right. Here's how consciousness and matter gets together. Um, and so I think, I think as a general methodological point of view, I think it makes sense to expect that there will be such laws as opposed to there just being these kind of funky anomalous correlations that can't be, that can't be put into the form of a law. Um, but I don't have a really strong view about what form those laws will take. Uh, and, and, you know, here there are a lot of options on the table for pretty much any theory of consciousness. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, there's, a, there's a property dualist version of that theory where, you know, so some people think consciousness just is a certain kind of behavior. You know, to be in pain is to act like you're in pain. So in principle, you could have a theory where you say consciousness uh, is distinct from being in pain. However, precisely those things are, are, are in pain, which act like they're in pain. That's just like a law of nature linking consciousness properties directly to behavior. That's pretty implausible, but, uh, you know, you could do that. You could likewise, you know, take your favorite theory at the neuronal level. You know, you might think that consciousness is a property of oscillation around 40 hertz, uh, and, uh, you know, and whenever, whenever the brain is, is, you know, sympathetically, uh, harmonizing with, with, with itself at that range, then, uh, uh, if you're an identity theorist, that's what consciousness is. If you're a property dualist, you can say it's precisely under those circumstances that the, the, the patient subject is also conscious. Um, and so on. So I don't have, personally, I don't, I don't have a strong, take on that uh you know there are these notoriously thorny questions about methodology there i mean i uh i also wouldn't rule out these uh sort of resilient monist approaches which you may have heard something about from some of your other uh no uh interviewees where you know the idea is that there's some kind of proto-consciousness that's attached somehow to at the very fundamental level of reality so there's some kind of proto-consciousness associated with each matter field and somehow human complex consciousness arises out of the interactions. Uh, hmm. uh, you know, maybe. Um, yeah. I don't Yeah. Oh, that makes sense. That, that, that is interesting. Um, I mean, I just think there's a lot we don't know there. I think it's, I think all the work on these different theories is super interesting and it's super interesting to see all the different kind of structural patterns people can find that seem to correlate to consciousness. But I just think, mm-hmm. you know, there are significant methodological hurdles uh, in the way of anyone establishing any theory like that with any degree of certainty, because, you know, you just, the trouble right. is the only real way you can test it is on your own case. You know, you can't, you can't really rely on what anyone else says. Because for all you know, their consciousness isn't quite lined up the same way yours is. I mean, that's one of the right. questions on, on, on the table. Um, so even if you assume that everyone else is aligned just exactly the way you are, uh, you know, there are still notoriously like all these different commonalities. I mean, it's very hard to decide whether consciousness is, say, a physical property having to do with the way your neurons are configured or like a functional property that's going to be... Um, common to all creatures that sort of structurally are like you include so you know take some alien who's made out of different stuff than you like a martian pretend who's made out of silicon or a robot who's made out of chips and uh you know say that that robot's chips perfectly simulate your neurons um even if you found the neuronal property that you're pretty sure correlates with consciousness uh is the robot conscious well what experiment could you possibly do to figure that out we can assume by hypothesis the robot will behave just like you. The robot mimics your, you know, the robot's chip function mimics your brain function, but it's still not obvious how to tell whether the robot's conscious. We can make sense of either hypothesis. So yeah, I think all these questions are sort of, you know, fun. You have to ask the robot. <laughs> well, the robot will say it's conscious because we're assuming yeah, the robot. But you don't know. Conscious. Yeah, but I mean, it's easy yeah. to say you're conscious. Well, I could I could program a, a chatbot right now that'll tell you it's conscious, uh, but you know, <laughs> probably not. Yeah, you have to eventually wait for it to say, "I think, therefore, I am." Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. So yeah. Yes. Yeah, I mean, uh, on your uh, on your dissertation, you know, you, you mm-hmm. talk about borderline consciousness. Yeah. 
And, um, you know, so what, what does that mean? What is borderline consciousness and what, you know, do you have kind of a, a position that you're sitting on right now regarding it? Yeah. So that's my main argument for property dualism. And, you know, there are people like David Chalmers out there who have other arguments for property dualism, but in my dissertation, I give a new one. And the idea is the borderlineness has, is the same as the vagueness. So when, uh, <clears throat> you know, there's some things like, um, event horizon of a black hole where there's an exact, you know, uh, line or, or surface mm-hmm. in space time, which is the exact point beyond which light cannot pass. Um, no question about right. it. For any singularity. You know, point of space time, it can be exactly calculated, right? But most yeah. things in, in, in our world are not like that. Most things are fuzzy and vague. So take being tall. Uh, some people are tall. Other people are not tall. But there are some people on the cusp between being tall and being not tall, people for whom it doesn't seem right to assert that they're tall, but it also doesn't seem right to assert that they're not tall. Right. And, uh, and uh, so my dissertation is about that whether or not there can be cases of consciousness like that, so whether there can be beings such that it's not right to say that they're conscious, but it's also not right to say that they're not conscious, not just because we don't know, but because they're in that nether region in between where it's neither true nor false. Um, yeah, like you mentioned, and, uh, I think an octopus. Uh, yeah, that's a good example. Uh, a lot of people have argued that, you know, octopuses behave in some ways like conscious beings in other ways not. They're functionally organized in some ways like conscious beings in other ways not. So a lot of people like Peter Godfrey Smith, who's got a book on octopuses, argue that actually octopuses are borderline cases of consciousness. Um, now, I argue that that's not right. I argue that in principle, the concept, like I was saying at the beginning, there's something special about the concept of consciousness. It's a, it's a, it's a primitive. It's, not, it's yeah. not a concept that we define up out of lots of other simpler concepts. It's kind of a building block in and of itself. And the, the real gist of my argument in my dissertation is that you can't, there aren't really borderline cases of building block concepts. Building block concepts have to either apply or not apply. Yeah. Um, and that's not that's a very general way of putting it. What I actually argue is that there are special features about the conceptual role of vague concepts. So when a concept is vague, like tall, um, and when then you, when you've got a case, a borderline case, a case where it's vague whether it's tall, there's something else you can say about that case. There's a way you can characterize that case positively um, that puts anyone who knows English, who knows the relevant language. Uh, that puts that person in such a person into a position to say that it's a vague or borderline case. So that's to say, like, I could line up a row of people for you of increasing heights, and I could point to the, some people in the middle and say, you know, those people, tell me about whether those people are tall. And you'd be in a position to say, oh, those people, eh, it's not really right to say tall, not really right to say not tall. You'd be right. able to recognize that those people were borderline cases because of some quali- some description we could give of those cases. In this case, a visual or a pictorial, a pictorial description. But in the usual case, words suffice too. In the usual case, I could just say, hey, imagine someone who's a five foot 11 European male. That's usually enough to get people to say, yeah, you know, five foot 11 for a European male, that's not really tall, but it's not really not tall. Um, and if that doesn't work for you, we can tweak the example. It's all very contextually sensitive, of course, so it's hard. You have to tweak yeah. the examples. But you can usually come up with, with examples that work once you fix the context in the right sort of way. You know, so another example is bald, right? There's a certain number of hairs on your head. Uh, and uh, if you've got more hairs than that, you're pretty clearly not bald. If you have no hairs on your head, you're pretty clearly bald. But, you know, there's some, some uh, intermediate... Uh, setup where you've got a few hairs left, but not all that many, and uh, you know, pluck a few hairs more, add a few hairs more, and you could sort of yeah. say, yeah, it's a borderline case. I'm not sure whether I'd call that bald or not. So the main point for me is, when you're dealing with a predicate that's vague, or a concept that's vague, uh, there's this thing that always happens, which is, you can describe the features of borderline cases that explain why they're borderline. Um, and moreover, that sort of put people in the position to know, to show people that these cases are borderline. And the thing with consciousness is that because the concept of consciousness is so isolated, it's really a primitive in its own right. Uh, 
there aren't enough descriptions that do that because the consciousness, and this is sort of a part of the, the famous point of David Chalmers' work and some other people's work as well, arguably also Descartes, is that uh, you, know, no, you, can, you can conceive, you can hold all the physical facts constant. You can conceive of a world where the mental stuff is different, even while you're imagining all the physical stuff is the same. So, for example, you can conceive of a world where uh, everyone you know is a zombie in the sense that they're not phenomenally conscious, even though they behave right. just like... You, um, <clears throat> and that's to say that you can know all the physical facts, but still not know the, the consciousness facts. Um, and so to hear the idea is even that take that description of the octopus. Suppose we have the, you know, Peter Godfrey Smith's book and we read everything in it, everything he tells us about octopuses. And, uh, you know, he says, well, they've got these tentacles and uh, each tentacle kind of uh, behaves autonomously and there's a central unit and the central unit does some amount of uh, coordinating what the tentacles do, but not a lot. And, you know, you hear all the details. And what are these details? Right. These are going to be details of the, the physical, functional and behavioral uh, characteristics of octopuses. And all these are going to be super interesting things to learn about. But none of them are going to, you know, put you in a position to see that the, that the octopus is neither conscious or not. You can make sense of lots of different hypotheses. You can still think, eh, you know, that's pretty weird, but maybe it is conscious. You can think, eh, maybe each tentacle is conscious. And there's also a central brain which is conscious. So maybe for each octopus, there are nine conscious beings. Or you can think, well, maybe the tentacles are conscious, but there's no central conscious being. So there's exactly eight conscious beings for every octopus. Or you can think maybe there are zero conscious beings. Maybe the octopus is actually just a zombie that, uh, behaves kind of like a conscious being. These are all things that you right. can still coherently entertain even after you've been given all the physical facts about the octopus. In contrast, I'm arguing, you can't coherently entertain the possibility that a 5'11 European male uh, is fully bald, is tall, or is not tall. Once you've been given the description 5'11 European male and maybe fix whatever other contextual details, then Right. It's kind of locked in that you're dealing with a borderline case of tall. So that's, that's the important distinction for me. I think for those reasons, uh, consciousness is a, a special exception, and there can't be, there cannot be any borderline cases of consciousness. There can certainly so be cases of that. Know. What's the significance of that? Well, I think with a few, with a few extra side assumptions, you can get from there to the conclusion that uh, <clears throat> the contour between consciousness and the world and other things has to be really sharp. That is, um, it can't just, one way of putting it, I mean, it, here's why, let me tell you this. The reason it puts pressure on reductivist accounts is because most reductivist accounts depend on consciousness being uh, vague. So, for example, the one I sketched earlier, which said um, consciousness is a matter of oscillation around 40 hertz. Uh, well, that's a hopelessly vague theory. I'm, I'm being extra vague in the way I formulate it. One can be more precise right. than that. But, uh, but the point is that, okay, what about 39.999 hertz? What about 39.9998 hertz? Uh, you know, there's not, there can't be any infinitesimally fine uh, line. We draw. And, of course, when we talk about oscillation, we're talking about average rates over time. So what's the time been? You know, what, how, how exactly are we taking these averages? And, you know, there are all manners right. in which the exact precision, you know, it would be an embarrassment for such a theory if it had to specify an exact, uh, you know, an exact time bin down to the plank length and then an exact uh, cutoff uh, uh, for the average down to, you know, infinitesimally fine uh, measure. Um, so, so I think that rules out uh, reductive theories that are couched in vague terms. Such a theory could be, uh, uh, almost true. You know, such a theory could be approximately correct for all I've argued so far, but it can't be exactly correct. And then you ask what, right. what's exactly correct. Uh, there, I think, I think some other considerations come into play. Um, you know, I think, I think another thing in, on the table is that we think of consciousness as a kind of joint in nature, you know, a natural kind in the sense that, well, you know, there's a, there's a pretty real difference between things that are conscious and things that aren't conscious. Um, so kind of like the way there's a, pretty real difference between liquids and gases, uh, you know, or between uh, ice and water or something like that. You know, right. they're, they're, there's, a, there's a real difference. And that difference, uh, 
means that you can't get, you know, there's not, there's not a, uh, there has to be some kind of buffer zone and quality space. You know, there's some, there has to be more than a, than a, an absolutely fine transition to get from the one state to the other. You know, it takes some work to get from one thing to the right. other thing. Uh, and, and that's where I think the, the, the real case for dualism comes in. You know, so really it's a two-step argument. First, ordinary uh, standing theories can't be quite right. Then when you look at the theories that could be quite right, if there are reductive theories, you know, theories that identify consciousness with, consciousness with something physical, they'd have to be um, identifying consciousness with something pretty arbitrary. You know, if it turns out that being conscious is a matter of having, you know, brain oscillations at 3.89624130124969 dot 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 um, or above, then, you know, right. you're really saying that like one plank length less uh, uh, of energy in the, in the relevant firing pattern and the thing would no longer have been conscious. No more conscious. That suggests right. that the difference between consciousness and unconsciousness is like totally inconsequential. And so I think if you think that the difference is consequential, uh, you have to reject such theories. Yeah. Okay. So, so the significance really is in helping further the the discussions and understanding of of consciousness. Yeah, I think it plays a role. I think we have to. And see, for me, I take the, I take there to be a kind of starting point there. I don't think I've argued for the significance of consciousness. I think that's just another premise. Yeah. Um, but for me, it's no, it's no more, uh, wild of a premise than the premise that there's something, you know, that, that the difference between ice and water is significant or the difference between, you know, right. uh, you know, these things that it's, it's things that can, of course, there's, there's a kind of path from one to the other. You can change one into the other. You can get from one to the other by making small changes. It's just that, um, there's gotta be some kind of buffer zone in between, you know, there's gotta be more than one teeny tiny inconsequential step to get you from one to the other. Right. Okay. Uh, and I think, you know, it's interesting. I mean, I, I think that there are a lot of arguments in this space, which begin with some kind of first personal premise, you know, some kind of premise about the importance of consciousness. Uh, and those premises are hard to justify by, you can't justify a premise like that by appealing to science. Um, but what I think you can do is sort of point out how uh, uh, essential premises like that are to the way we ordinarily go through life. So one thing I've, I've been thinking about recently is how, how, uh, how much of a role consciousness plays in our thinking about values and morality. Um, so, you know, a lot, of, a, lot of, a lot of the time when we think about why things are bad, they're bad because they cause people pain uh, yeah. and suffering. Right, but it's not. We don't care about the the sort of neuronal adjustments that cause people to exhibit pain behavior. That's not what we care about. It's the the experience of pain that's bad. Um, yeah. And why do we think that's bad? You know, and likewise, some states like joy or elation or pride or courage or you know are are things that we think are intrinsically good or intrinsically to be praised or or uh, to be celebrated. And and uh, uh, you know, again, it seems to be that if you if you take away the consciousness those are just sort of random particles bumping into one another and, and, and uh, it's hard to justify the normative import we attach. So it seems that it's the consciousness, the phenomenal consciousness that gives these things their value. Um, yeah. And that's one of the reasons I think, I think consciousness is significant um, because I can't, you know, we can't, morality is impossible otherwise, if you ask me. Yeah. Yeah, that makes good sense. That makes sense. Um, so taking, taking that into, you know, the, the next, I think, big concept that, that I saw you mentioning, especially in your paper on, uh, is, is immortality, you know, and, and you go through the argument, I think, between, uh, you know, analyzing Mendelssohn and Kant and that gap between, um, consciousness existing and then not existing. Um, can you give us kind of a, a quick summary of, of that argument or, you know, what it is you, you looked at there in terms of immortality of consciousness and that, that went, you know, before and after or that, that moment in time, does this relate to that? Sure. Like you mentioned. About yeah, the, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, first, I, mean I, was, I was struck, what happened here was I was chatting with a friend who's a Kant scholar and uh, you know, he came, he asked me, he has this passage of Mendelssohn. There's this 
little moment in the first critique where uh, Kant spends a page or two addressing this argument that Moses Mendelssohn gives for the immortality of the soul. And, you know, Kant comes along and he has some clever little thing that he says and he dismisses it. And, you know, the funny thing, and for me, the sad thing is that uh, sort of since that time, since Kant's two-page treatment of Mendelssohn's argument, um, pretty much the only attention this argument's had in the history of philosophy is people talking about Kant's dismissal of it. Uh, Hmm. Kant took himself to have refuted it. And it's funny because at the time, so I looked into it, I hadn't seen the passage before. I'm not really, I don't really do much history of philosophy, but I was sort of intrigued and I looked into it and I was really surprised and impressed with what I found from Mendelssohn. You know, at the time, first of all, Mendelssohn was like, you know, a major intellectual celebrity of his day. Not I mean, even right. later on, he went on to be sort of the, the father of the Jewish Enlightenment, and he was always sort of a figure um, of importance because he, he was sort of um, known to be Jewish, but still involved in the major philosophical works of the day. So, um, you know, his friend uh, Lessing, the, the playwright, wrote a play called Nathan the Wise, which actually was about <laughs> Mendelssohn and sort of, you know, the good Jew, that sort of thing. Right. Um, but anyway, so he was an interesting character, but he had this book called the Phaedon, which was um, basically a reworking of Plato's dialogue, the Phaedo, the one where he drinks, one about uh, Socrates uh, drinking the hemlock and killing himself. Uh, mm-hmm. So he reworks this and he, he adds to it and he, adds, he you know, develops this new argument for the immortality of the soul. And it was like a sensational blockbuster hit at the time. Um, right. And, uh, you know, like he, Mendelssohn was famous because of this blockbuster, like new argument for the immortality of the soul. Um, and, uh, and I thought it was kind of fascinating and, uh, he was a cool guy. He ran, a he ran a Schmata factory, you know, he ran a, a silk factory during the day and just sort of, okay. you know, scribbled in the evenings and managed to produce this thing. And later on managed to produce a whole realm of other impressive, uh, you know, works on like Jewish, uh, philosophy and theology. And then he managed to like win uh, full civil rights for Jews in uh, Germany and Austria. So, you know, it was a pretty cool guy, but anyway to the argument. The, the argument's interesting. And, the, and the, the real thing that moved me was the fact that the argument is cool, but no one is really talking about it anymore. And it actually is an argument that ties in with a lot of other arguments people make today in, in analytic philosophical metaphysics. Um, hmm. So here's the argument. I mean, the argument that yeah. Mendelssohn gives is basically that um, there can't be, the soul can't die because uh, it would have to be, it's either going to be vague. If the soul dies, then it has to go from existing to non-existing. There has to be an earlier time at which it exists and a later time at which it no longer exists. Um, right. So many reasons, well, it's going to have to either be you know, vague or precise. There's either going to be a certain specific precise moment at which the soul goes out of being, or it's going to sort of be a gradual process. And Mendelssohn reasons for... Uh, for reasons that I sympathize with, he says, well, you know, it can't be a gradual process. Basically, this is me putting words into Mendelssohn's mouth, because consciousness can't be vague. So it's either there or it's not at any given point in time. Um, So it's going to have to be precise. But the trouble is, uh, how how could there non-arbitrarily be an exact moment at which the soul goes out of being? Basically, it's it's an argument from arbitrariness. It would have to be completely arbitrary. uh, which moment consciousness went out of being. And therefore, uh, we should favor theories that minimize the amount of arbitrariness. Uh, so we should favor theories in which basically there's a conservation of, of consciousness. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and uh, he actually, his argument's a little more refined. He's not just concerned with there being, it being arbitrary which moment. Uh, in my view, he's concerned with a more special matter, which is whether or not uh, you know, supposedly grant the, the time, you know, say it's exactly noon on Thursday when, when a given soul goes out of being, but there's still a question. And the question is, is the time exactly noon? Is that the last moment at which the soul exists or the first moment at which the soul doesn't exist? And what Mendelssohn really thinks is that even if we can somehow settle that the time is noon on Thursday, uh, we're still never going to be able to settle whether noon on Thursday is the last moment of existence or the first moment of non-existence. And he thinks that arbitrariness is really bad. Um, and now... And therefore means that view, it doesn't die. And therefore means it's sort of a matter of theoretical virtue. So, yeah. you know, theory A that says there is such death 
is committed to all these arbitrary things happening that it can't explain in any clear way. Uh, and then a theory which says the immortality theory is not committed to that arbitrariness. So right. the immortality theory is to be preferred. It's not a knockdown argument because, of course, immortality theory will have other flaws. But the idea is that on this point, uh, you know, it's a feather in the cap of immortality theory and a black eye for uh, mortality theory. Right. Okay. I'm sorry. You're about to say your your view, your opinion. Oh, I mean, I think that. So you know, when you, I think there's a tendency when you look at arguments like that to say, well, you know, now we have physics and we know that uh, stuff can just be arbitrary. But I actually don't think it's that obvious because, um, you know, even if even I mean, there are readings of, there are interpretations of quantum mechanics where, you know, certain events happen. There's some kind of objective probability and the wave function collapses and whether, you know, the quantum coin lands spin up or spin down is a matter of chance. Um, so, you know, maybe you could say something about that here. Maybe you could just say, well, you know, it's like a special quantum event and, uh, and uh, you know, it's a special matter of quantum chance whether, you know, the soul whether noon is the last moment of existence or the first moment of non-existence. Um, but it's not, that's certainly not going to flow out of any quantum formalism we've got. So right. we're going to have to cook up a whole new theory of, you know, the Schrodinger equation for, for souls. And you're going to have to tell a story about what collapses the soul wave function. And it's, it's, it's probably going to get pretty messy. So, you know, even right. taking into account the ways that, um, you know, quantum mechanics incorporate what looks like chance, uh, it's not obvious that you can assimilate this kind of arbitrariness. Um, I mean, maybe if you sort of assimilate this case with the case of sort of virtual creation and annihilation of particles, you could, uh, you could maybe make something sound more plausible, but it's, it's just not obvious how, uh, the two cases compare. So, you know, again, I think this is all more compelling if we've already conceded something like property dualism. So if we've already conceded that there's some, you know, special sort of phenomenal quality and maybe even a, a phenomenal substance, you know, then presumably that substance isn't going to be governed by the laws that govern microphysical particles. Um, right. So you're going to have to cook up some new theory either way. Uh, and it's just not obvious how that new theory will be, you know, it, it, it seems like the arbitrariness is going to be a problem for that theory uh, all the same. Yeah. So what, uh, you know, I guess practically thinking, um, and I'm going to assume that we're talking about, you know, the soul that we're, we're talking about consciousness. Are, are those two things one and the same in these arguments? That's a good question. Um, yeah, and there's certainly traditions that differentiate um, but I'm being sloppy here and, uh, taking them to be the same. I was sort of thinking of the, uh, you know, first of all, I, I was thinking you could run this even just talking about like properties. So maybe, uh, I mean, you know, one possibility is that there's a kind of steady stream of things that instantiate phenomenal properties. And, you know, it's not really me from, you know, some people think that uh, just as you can't step in the same river twice, you know, me on Monday and me on Friday are different people. Right. Um, so if you think that sort of thing, then it's sort of a different substance at every instant that's instantiating the phenomenal properties. Um, you know, the, the immortality argument would still have something to say. It might imply that, well, you know, there's got to be something that goes on sort of uh, have the phenomenal properties that kind of developed out of my current ones. Um, but it might not, it might be a different thing, but that doesn't necessarily imply that there's a soul. Um, it's, I, th I think, I think you could kind of get creative with the details there and go a lot of different ways, but like, you know, intuitively it, let's just say, yeah, let's just say, um, the soul is the thing that's conscious. And the claim here is that there's a thing that's conscious that's, that, that continues your consciousness and it, uh, it, it, it would continue to exist after your physical death, presumably. And so how would that, how would that look? Do you, have, do you have any concepts? I think if I think back to the earlier part of our conversation, uh, you know, about mind body and, and any binding between the two, it's, uh, you know, wasn't really a, a defined 
thing and, and there could be this, these forces at play. I think it almost comes back into this instance. What, what's, what actually survives? And yeah, where does that's it a good go? Question. And, you know, those I mean, and things. this is enough to see, this is the, uh, the, the downside to the theory. I don't think, I think if you're motivated by, um, as I am, you know, this sort of general sense that there, there have to be psychophysical laws and, um, you know, we're entitled to think of them as, uh, uh, um, as uh, sort of uh, compact and elegant as possible. Or anyway, we're, we're entitled right. to sort of look for law. You know, we should, we should favor theories that say that those laws are elegant, give us elegant accounts. Then, um, you know, it's, it's hard to see how these kind of um, post-death souls are going to be doing much uh, by way of experiencing without bodies, because it certainly looks as though the body mediates experience. Um, so, uh, you know, it's, um, I mean, Mendelssohn has a whole theory. On Mendelssohn's theory, basically, uh, uh, you just think. You know, you, uh, uh, souls post-death just uh, sort of reflect on, on, on the abstract, um, because that doesn't require mediation of a body. Uh, but of course, even that, I mean, actual thought requires the brain to um, compute. Uh, so it's unclear whether even that's possible without a medium of computation. Um, so, you know, the, the, most, the most theoretically conservative theory of this would actually be a pretty uh, pessimistic one. It would predict that, uh, you know, there's no, you don't do much at all after you lose the body. Um, although maybe one could hold out hope. Maybe maybe some kind of reincarnation would 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 uh, would make up for that. You know, maybe as long as the soul kind of you know interacts later with another body, then it could get back uh, some consciousness. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I should say, you know, for me, this is an important argument, and it's worth considering. But you know, I think that uh, uh, I mean, there are some things to be said against. I mean, one one thing to say in criticism is that you know, if I'm right, that consciousness isn't vague. There are already going to be some other kinds of arbitrariness in the in the ballpark because um, the laws uh, the laws that couple phenomenal properties consciousness properties with physical properties are probably going to end up being kind of arbitrary in character um, even at a time because you know as I was saying before it seems as though it can't be that the difference between being conscious and not being conscious just is the difference between oscillation at three eight point two seven five one or oscillation anywhere above that. However, um, assuming that the laws are precise, they're going to have to say that. Well, it just turns out that in this world, consciousness goes along with um, oscillation at precisely these frequencies and none lower. So, the, and that's going to be sort of arbitrary anyway. So, if there can be those arbitrarinesses, you know, in in delineations at a time, um, maybe. Uh, it's it's going to be of a piece of a muchness uh, to to impose kinds of cutoffs uh, in, in you know across time as well, um, and right. if that's right, then the kind of theory you'd end up with would wouldn't be too troubled by you know just allowing that it's kind of arbitrary when exactly the soul goes out of being. So I was thinking there are right. problems for physicalists in saying how there could be a perfect arbitrariness there, but I think once you've already got a psychophysical theory that's that's uh that has to incorporate some arbitrariness um you know maybe that'll maybe it'll make maybe it won't be too hard to just allow uh arbitrariness in the temporal direction as well right okay interesting um the uh in looking at all of this and i don't even know if if you think about you know this part of it i know it's one of my focuses and one of the reasons i i talked to so many smart people like you on the, on the subject is trying to figure out if there's a way for us as humans to even, you know, expand or exercise or observe, you know, interact in our, with our consciousness, you know, in, in any way, do you, with everything you've studied and looked at, does that, is that something you would even think about or have ever thought about or have any thoughts on as far as how an individual can actually kind of you know, some people think about meditation. And when you go to go into a deep state of meditation, you, you seem to, your thoughts fall away and you're in kind of a moment where you seem to be almost with your own consciousness. Is there anything here that 
has a sort of a practical value of exercising or playing with or, or manipulating, molding one's consciousness? Is that something you've ever considered? Well, you know, I, I think that, uh, I tend to think that that's easier than it may sound. I think that actually um, anyone who's listening to this podcast has been engaged with a certain amount of that. You know, just the activity of trying to think about what consciousness is and what we're talking about when we talk about consciousness as opposed to the physical or functional um, trappings of consciousness. Uh, yeah. That's already, uh, you know, engaging in, in that activity. And, um, you know, I'm always impressed. I find it very helpful to look at the empirical work sort of talking about disorders of consciousness because sometimes, mm. you know, when you learn about all the different ways that it's sort of like, you know, you don't know what you have until you've lost it. Uh, similarly, uh, you know, reading about people who, who um, can, can like process all the features of a scene, but can't appreciate how they all hang together or yeah. people who, you know, can see the left side of their visual field, but not the right side of their visual field, or people who have experiences of their body parts not belonging to them, or right. you know, people who have experiences of thoughts that aren't theirs, or people who have experiences of pain that they don't mind. You know, all these kinds of, of things, when you read about, uh, you know, the evidence that there, there are ways of feeling like that, I think that just sort of helps me see, gee, you know, it's like, I guess there are these two components. Like take the pain example. I've, I'm sort of fascinated by the phenomenon. It's called asymbolia, you know, and, and asymbolics say that they, they can feel pain. They just don't mind it. Um, huh. And this is different from, there's another phenomenon called congenital insensitivity to pain. And uh, those guys just don't feel pain. They just don't feel it. They maybe feel some, it's not that they can't feel anything. They can feel bumps and, 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 and stuff, but they don't feel the painful. They don't feel anything painy about it. So, you yeah. know, they can just sort of burn themselves and not notice. <clears throat> and uh, they tend to be very short-lived, unfortunately. But uh, asymbolics, it's a more subtle thing. Asymbolics can actually feel the pain. <clears throat> they, can, they can tell the difference between the pain feeling and the kind of physical sensation associated with it. It's just that they don't mind that pain feeling. Right. Uh, so what it suggests is that there's this distinction between the feeling of pain and the feeling of minding the pain or the feeling of wanting the pain to stop. And you might have thought those two were the same, but they have to be different. And uh, Yeah. Interesting. You know, so, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that makes good sense. Um, that's, that's interesting. I never even heard of those. Yeah. And I mean, I think that there's obviously lots of other approaches like meditation and, uh, and thinking. But, you know, for me, a lot of the times it's about a lot of the things that are most important in kind of expanding my consciousness of my consciousness is just sort of appreciating all the all the different features it has. You know, sometimes you need to resort to the third person. You know, sometimes just direct introspection isn't enough. And, you know, to really right. get at what's sort of marvelous and strange about consciousness, it helps to, you know, look at the look at look at the evidence of how other people are feeling. Yeah. That's yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, it's kind of like looking at the whole mind and when they finally separated the two sides of the brains and the behaviors they noticed at that point, it shed such a giant light. Yeah. On that. Yeah, it's interesting. Um Yeah. So uh two more two more questions to to get us wrapped up. The the first one is, you know, what what else do you think you're going to be working on in the future? What when it comes to consciousness, what else are you studying or what are you getting excited about in the field? You know, what breakthroughs do you see coming through here and then what are you going to be involved in and kind of what's what's exciting you about the future of the study of consciousness? Well, I'm pretty excited in uh or interested anyway in 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 AI these days and I think uh mm. uh there's a lot of interesting questions about, you know, whether the machines are going to be conscious, whether if we upload ourselves digitally into the machines, whether we will remain conscious. Uh, I think those questions are going to be increasingly important, just as those technologies become real and more present in our everyday lives. Yeah. I think it's going to matter to more and more people. More and more people are going to find themselves confronted. I mean, all the sci-fi already explains why, I think. But, you know, um, are, we, are we mistreating our robot slaves? Uh, you know, what do we owe to the robots? What do they owe to us? Um, and then, yeah. you know, for me, the, the, the particular uh, interest I have in these questions has to do with vagueness, because I think that um, 
you know, it's tempting for a lot of people sort of gravitate towards the answer that, well, you know, it's, it's a vague case, borderline case. And, and for right. me, you know, because I have these arguments that it can't be a borderline case, um, the answer is inevitably harder than that. Uh, you know, it's, they're, they're either conscious or they're not. We just, we just don't know. And uh, so we have to struggle a little more to figure out the way forward. Um, I think yeah. I'm also interested in, in animal consciousness and, uh, you know, consciousness of uh, the comatose and the, the people in, you know, minimally conscious states, as they're called, or vegetative states, for, for similar right. reasons. I think that, you know, there's a temptation to think, well, you know, it's, a, it's vague whether certain animals like lobsters or octopuses are conscious. And that maybe means we can kind of treat them like halfway between moral beings and, non, and beings that don't matter morally. Um, yeah. And again, you know, I think well, that's, that can't be the right answer. Maybe they, maybe they are conscious, maybe they're not. We don't know for right. sure, but it's bound to be one or the other. And that I think constrains how we think about it. So I think, so I'm sort of trying to um, bring this insight to bear on a lot of different cases of increasing uh, relevance to our lives. Yeah. And it's obviously important, especially when you look at the, you know, define morality being tied to, to consciousness and, and how a conscious being feels as a result of the being treated by other conscious beings, you know, so you're looking at the morality of somebody in a coma or an animal or even a robot. Yeah. I think that's Yeah, uh, that's right. And I think it's also important. I, I want to get clearer in future work on which parts of consciousness are the parts that matter, you know, morally. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, you might think one view says that it's just the mere fact of consciousness is intrinsically important, even if you're not really doing anything with it. Another view says yeah. it really matters. You know, pain is sort of negatively important and maybe joy is positively important. But just the sensation of just sitting there and watching the paint dry, maybe that's maybe that's not intrinsically important. Um, yeah. You know, so maybe. So, so it's a question. You might think, well, it's just sort of the capacity to feel states that are important. Is that capacity itself important? Uh, I'm not sure. I've, I've been meaning to work through my hunches on that one. Um, yeah. But yeah, it might matter to some of these issues. Yeah. Cool. Um, um, yeah. Anyway, my last thing is just an open-ended question. Is there anything else that you would want to, that you hoped that I would ask or you wanted to discuss before we wrap up? Uh, gee, um, uh, nothing comes to mind offhand. I thought that was a, a nice okay. chat. Good, uh, but, uh, good, me too. But you know where to find me if you think of anything. Yeah, yeah, I, I appreciate that. And uh, John, I want to thank you again for your time today and joining the Consciousness Podcast. I, I really enjoyed talking to you, and you, you've left me with a lot to think about. All right, it's been a real pleasure, Stuart. Thanks for having me on. That concludes another edition of the Consciousness Podcast. Thanks again for listening. Please find us at Facebook at facebook.com slash the Consciousness Podcast at our Twitter handle at ConchCast. And don't forget to subscribe to our feed at theconsciousnesspodcast.com. Thank you for listening.